Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back to another very special episode of the Soul Talk podcast. It's Coot here. We've had some uh, amazing episodes uh, during these summer months. It's been it's been fire in many ways with great episodes, amazing guests. Today, I'm very excited about. Uh, I'm actually bringing on someone I'm going to claim is my favorite yoga teacher. I think she's way more than uh, than a yoga teacher. I've never actually taken her yoga class, but she's officially my favorite yoga teacher, you know, hands down, bar none. I had the uh, amazing opportunity to, uh, we were actually part of a film together, We Rise Up, and I got to meet her for the first time on a panel, see her speak, and I was so inspired by her passion, her heart, her sincerity, her rawness, her realness. Uh, she was just uh, touched my soul. And uh, it's just a real pleasure. She's an internationally acclaimed yoga teacher, speaker, known for her social activism, her definitely you know, raw, honest, real style of self-expression. She's been teaching for probably, wow, over 25 years. And you, you probably know of her, have taken her yoga classes or maybe have been touched by her in some way, shape, or form. Welcome to Soul Talk, Sean Korn. Welcome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Although I'm now I'm wondering, how come you have never taken my yoga class? <laughs> right. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, you're my favorite yoga teacher, and I've never taken your class. But <laughs> that says a lot, though. You know, if you could be my favorite without me taking your class, just imagine if I take your class. You know, I'm excited. You'll so. be in a fetal You'll position. You'll see me. You're going to see me. Well, I hope so. I look forward to that. That'd be awesome. Listen, it's it's so great to have you on. It was so really inspiring to meet you uh, at at this film premiere. Uh, We rise up in in Park City at Sundance. I was I was just thrilled. I felt like I met a soul sister on the path, and uh, just just been excited to to share you with with everyone listening. And you know, for those that don't know, and I'm curious myself in terms of a bit about your path. And so I hear you've been teaching for 25 years. And so how did that path begin of yoga? You know, I'm always curious that you know, I grew up in this sort of spiritual field and I'm always curious about how people got into spirituality, yoga, self-help, personal growth in some way. Well, what, what, what inspired this trajectory into teaching and activism and speaking and how did that begin? Well, you know, I did not grow up in a family of spiritualists. I wish that would have been really, really interesting and fun, uh, challenging, I mm. imagine. I grew up in a, a, a home that would be uh, probably more agnostic than atheist, you know, Catholic, Jewish, um, but chose not to re- raise us with any religion at all. My parents gave us, um, we celebrated every holiday that gave a gift, and that was 
pretty mm-hmm. much, you know, our connection to ritual. And um, so I did not uh, have the opportunity. In some ways, it's, it's challenging. In the other ways, it was really good not growing up with any kind of um, a model for spirituality left me really open to explore the different methodologies of spirituality without any prejudice attached to it or fear or guilt or shame. And so uh, I never had an inclination to go towards spiritual practice until I moved to New York City, which would be in 1984, and I was uh, just around uh, 17. Mm -hmm. I just graduated high school. And it Mm -hmm. was in New York that I got exposed to just by, I, I can look at it now and just see that it was karma, the grace of God, just happenstance, whatever you might want to call it. But yeah. the universe conspired to bring people and events into my life that allowed me to understand spirituality through a more non-dogmatic lens that wasn't mm-hmm. predetermined by literature or um, script scripture even it was something that had to be uncovered from within and when mm-hmm. i was given the opportunity to embrace spirituality as something not separate from myself was when i felt mm-hmm. more comfortable and inspired to want to learn more and so it happened at a really early age the first time i walked mm-hmm. to a yoga class i was 19 and um and again not you know i i Simultaneous to doing yoga, I was also working in nightclubs um, all over New York City. I was doing a lot of drugs, drinking like crazy, uh, indulging in whatever I could. And I'm not ashamed of any of this. I'm grateful for it. It was Mm. a whole different – it's a very organic part of of maturation. You know, so I was experimenting and exploring Mm. it all. So while simultaneously doing drugs, I also – was being introduced to these practices. And before mm. my body-mind had a chance to even move towards the possibility of addiction, the things like drugs mm. and alcohol and smoking just stopped feeling good on my body. And before you know it, mm. I, had a, uh, I had a practice. And, you know, I often joke, though, I could have used, you know, just a couple more years of, you know, partying and inappropriate sex before I got right on the path, <laughs> because it all happened relatively early for me. So I, lo- I lost a lot of missed opportunities, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> damn it. You could have just scheduled this yoga thing for like 24, you know. <laughs> Absolutely, had I had known. Um, but it happened very yeah. early. Oh, gotcha. And so was there like a moment where, uh, so you say it just happened organically. There wasn't like a moment where you just woke up and, you were like, this is enough, or it, it, just certain things just fell away? Like, ha, ha, what was that process like? Because I know there's some, some people that maybe are going down a path and maybe they're struggling with addiction. So I'm curious if you could speak to some to those also who might be on a path where they know what they should do, that I should do yoga, I should, you know, drink healthily, eat healthily, but, but they, they, they just, they can't seem to stop going down certain paths or self-destructive mm-hmm. behaviors. So... Speak to that as well, because it sounds like it happened naturally for you, but uh, I'm sure well, there's folks that they can't seem to stop. And how did they stop? Naturally and not. You, you know, you're correct, and okay. I don't want to suggest that, for, that the pathway was easy. It was just that the tools were put in front of me at an early age, 
And I fought those tools like crazy. I mean, the first five years of me doing yoga was purely physical. There was no sense of emotion or, or spirituality. There's definitely a pathway. I just didn't want to feel bad in my body before anything else opened mm. up. But, you know, I'll backtrack a little bit in that um, I worked at a place called Life Cafe on 10th and Avenue B back in the 80s, and it was owned by a man named David Life who went on to open mm. Jiva Mukti Yoga. They were yeah. instrum- He, David Life, and his partner Sharon Gannon, who was a waitress there, were instrumental in me also learning things like about veganism and other forms of practice that go beyond the body. Like all of these seeds were being introduced to me um, just in different ways at different times. And be- but I resisted yoga because, like all spirituality, it reeked of dogma to me, and I was not interested in that. I worked, and I've told this story uh, often um, in different channels, and it's actually the first chapter in my book, but it's, it's an important one because it does really illustrate the awakening that I had in a very unusual way, and I hope that for the people who are listening, that God and angels show up at different times in different ways that might not, you know, for the status quo, it might mm. not seem spiritual or divine or sacred, but God meets you where you're at and provides guidance and messages that we can receive. I could not receive the message of God in a temple or in a church or in a mosque. For me, it happened in an all-male gay sex club called, ironically enough, Heaven, which was yeah. in which was in the rectory of an old um, church turned to a disco called Limelight, um, which is a very famous nightclub. I was a bartender in this uh, sex club, the only uh, cisgender female allowed into the club, and I had to stay behind the bar and you know just serve drinks, and there was so much stuff going on in that environment. Wow. And, of course, that would be the last place one would think that they would find God. And... Mm. Um, there was a man who came into the club, Billy, an African-American man, around 58 years old, um, who adored me. And Billy had been ostracized from his family, from his church, from his community when he came out as gay. And he had left where he lived, which is Ohio, to move to New York City to live out his truth. And Billy was adored me, like I said, but he also had a lot of issue around my drug and, and, and drug use and my drinking. And... Um, would give me a really hard time about it. And I trusted Billy. He had been in the program, um, had issues with drugs and alcohol himself, and uh, was very committed to the path of recovery. Um, but, you know, I'm still young, so I could care less about recovery. I just, you know, I'm just having fun. And uh, I don't see Billy for about three weeks. And eventually, you know, he comes back into the club. He crosses over the dance floor to see me. I reach over to grab him, to hug him. And he, um, as I do, I notice he has these open sores on his neck and on his shoulder, one on his cheek. And mm. I pull away and I said, oh, my God, Billy, what, what the hell's on your neck? And he touches one of the sores and he says they're symptomatic of my disease. And mm. you know, I hesitate because I know exactly what he's about to say, but I'm too young like in, to handle what's about to happen. And so mm. I say to him, what disease? And he says he has AIDS. Now, at that time, 
there's probably 40,000 reported cases. Now there are 40 million. Um, and even wow. though I worked in an all-gay sex club and, you know, thought I was sophisticated, the moment I heard AIDS, I recoiled because of my own ignorance. Mm. And mm. the moment I recoiled, I mean, I felt all this shame. And um, I saw this look of hurt on Billy's face, and I said, I'm sorry. And he asks me if, he, if I want to know more about his disease or about the disease, and I said, of course. And he explained to me how he thought he got it, how he thought I could contract it. You know, I asked him, could I get it if he cried on me, kissed me, you know, and on and on. And after, you know, I had asked all these questions, I asked this final question, which was, um, what's going to happen? And yeah. I remember Billy looking at me and saying um, that, uh, he said, uh, I'm going to die. Just like that, I'm going to die. And I asked him if he was scared, and he said that he wasn't because of his faith in God. And when he said faith in God for the second time that night, I recoiled. And so Billy this time Mm. laughed, and he said, Sean, don't you believe in God? And I said, no, I I, I don't. And I explained to him growing up in an atheist family, and, you know, I had these strong superstitions around God. You know, I always thought God just kind of showed up when when you fucked up and you were getting punished, and I decided that if this this patriarchal figure that seemed to loom so heavy in the lives of people was so dogmatic and judgmental that I wanted nothing to do with this. So Billy mm. says to me, do you want to see God right here? And I look around the club, you know, people are they're dancing mm. and making out and half naked and hanging on the walls and straps. And I laughed and I said, wow. yeah, you show me God here. So he points to Danny the Wonder Pony. And Danny the Wonder Pony was this white guy that used to come into um, the club all the time, but naked, except for a pair of chaps and a saddle. And for a dollar, you can climb on Billy's back, I mean on Danny's back, and he would trot around the dance floor, and you can hit him with a switch. And Billy said, God's right there. And then he points to this person. At that time, we would have referred to this person, her name was Violet, as a cross-dresser. Now we would understand her to be transgender. And... um, Billy points to this, um, uh, to Violet, and Violet was like six foot six, wore a, a, like a light blue house dress, sensible shoes, a gray wig, and a veil. And Billy says, God's right there. Then Billy points mm-hmm. to two, two men like wearing business suits in a booth, and they look like, like two straight guys, like my brothers, you know? And they're mm-hmm. arguing playfully, and Billy said, God's right there. And then Billy turns to me and he takes my hand and he puts it over his chest, right over his heart. And then he takes his hand and puts it over my chest. And uh, he looks me right square in the eyes and he says, Sean, God's right here. He said, I'm going to tell you something. I hope you remember this the whole of your life. Ignore the story and see the soul and remember to love. You'll never regret it. And from there he went on to say to me that everything that's in this club is a story everything. It's not who we are, that we're here to learn. We're here to open to love. And the rate in which that happens is between each soul and the God of their own understanding. And that the judgment is only within ourselves, but we're not our color. We're not our sexuality. We're not our trauma. We're not our alcoholism. These are aspects of our experience, but they're not who we are. Are. And the more in which we can peel back the layers of illusion and see each other from the, uh, as the evolving souls that we are and the love that we've always been, 
that we will all mm. know peace, we will all know connection, and which in time I would come to understand as yoga. So this was my first introduction to seeing the God within and that everyone was here to awaken to what this love is and that there was a pathway designed for each soul that teaches them to embrace the God within themselves. And that, so when you ask the question about like, the, you know, like when we stumble and struggle on the path and how do we get there, it's a matter of trust and faith that we're exactly where we're supposed to be, learning exactly what we're supposed to be learning, that teachers and teach, teachings come in and out of our lives at all times, designed to hold a mirror up to reflect back to us the places within ourselves that's disconnected from God, because we can't change it until we can see it. And so until we can see it, then we can begin to activate the tools that can help us to move towards healing. And so anyone who's listening, that this path is challenging, that often we use substances, TV, shopping, sex as a way to numb ourselves from the bigger feelings and from the ways we feel disconnected. So if we can learn tools to help us to sit in the discomfort to learn to tolerate the sensations in our body that we want to run from, we will be able to begin mm. the process of healing and awakening to the God within ourselves and within all. I love it. Deep, deep. I'm digesting what you're saying. Seeing the God in all things. You know, you, you've triggered a few questions. Um, I want to talk about this tolerating the sensations. Before I get to that, though, I did have, a, I'd love to hear your thought on, because I think it's beautiful what you're saying about, you know, the judgment is only in ourselves, just removing the judgment. And it, what is the line for those listening between, or is there a line in how you see it between, let's say, you know, okay, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be, Sean. You know, I'm doing this thing, I'm in this relationship, I'm, you know, I'm addicted to whatever it is I'm addicted to, or, or spiraling in these patterns. I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be, not judging myself. Is there a line, though, between, let's say, embracing that a little too far and maybe using that sort of spiritual idea as a cop-out? You know, like, hey, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be, so I'm going to keep, you know, just fucking around. I'm going to keep doing cocaine. I'm going to keep, you know, smoking whatever to the point where it's not healthy. But I'm exactly, you know, where I'm supposed to be, so it's all part of the experience, and it's just what it is. And there's, it, talk to you about that. What, where's the discernment and how can one discern, mm-hmm. you know, between, okay, now I'm not really, now I'm just falling into patterns. I'm not taking responsibility. Tell me about right. that. Cause it, I'm just thinking it could be a bit of a slippery slope sometimes. Absolutely. Uh, it's called spiritual bypass. Yeah. And yes. when we use the language of spirituality as a way to actually avoid doing the work, and it's that there's a saying, you know, trust Allah, but tie your camel to the post. You still yeah. got to do the work. And so when I say that, that you're exactly where you're supposed to be, in the path that I follow, it's like life happens. You can't change what is, but you can change your perception. So if someone is dealing with alcoholism, and they're, or, or I'm sorry, if they're actively in their acting mm-hmm. out, if they are committed to deception, to betrayal, to uh, whether they're betraying themselves or someone else. But if they're in the shadow and they're committed 
to that path. The end result is always going to be pain and suffering. That's a choice. Yes. One can stay mm-hmm. in that choice or they can recognize this moment is happening. This is where I'm at. It is not bringing me joy, happiness, or integration. Therefore, what do I need to do to learn from this moment so that I can take away some wisdom as I evolve forward um, and not pretend like the moment isn't happening or that it doesn't even have any value, Um, but to stay stuck in it? And again, that might be also, that might be part of one's past, just the addiction to stuckness. Mm. But... At one point, they have to really, one has to be really willing to look at, is this moment in time moving me towards my my highest spiritual potential? Am I using the texts or these tools as a way to bypass and actually avoid my big feelings? And do you have a bit, does one have a bigger spiritual framework in which they're working with so they can move through the stuckness? but without making what happened within the stuckness bad, wrong, or flawed. Um, I like that, yes. You know, yeah. Meaning that someone yeah. with, what happened to me in the sex club, depending on perception, someone could look at that moment in time and say that that was really, you know, what was this underage girl doing working in a sex club? You know, someone could have a lot of judgment mm. about that. And yet, that moment, that place, those teachers were able to mm-hmm. help give me perception, perspective, to move me into an even deeper place within my awareness. That me using drugs and alcohol, I was using them to anesthetize, to numb myself out um, because of the disconnect I felt within myself. Thankfully, mm-hmm. I didn't stay using drugs and alcohol as a tool for anest- to anesthetize. That I was able to see that this is. Um, this is something I'm using to numb myself. Why? Mm. And what would happen mm. if I went deeper into that why? What would be exposed? Mm. And that's really the invitation. It's, uh, although we can definitely use it as an excuse to stay stuck, and that is a choice. Yes. Um, but my hope is that anyone that's listening recognizes that we are here to learn what love is, that we are here to awaken to the power and the potential of that love from within, and that life itself is the educational process that brings us towards that awakening. So the shadow is not bad. It's opportunity Mm. for awareness. Mm. I love that. The shadow is not bad. It's opportunity for awareness, yeah. Actually, as you were talking, I, I, I was circling this word, awareness, and I think that's that's key. It's it's going through whatever you're going through with that, that awareness as you're mm-hmm. going through it. It's, it's being conscious. You mentioned earlier, Sean, about, uh, you know, sometimes the reason we, we're doing the drug or the alcohol or whatever is to numb sensation, to numb a feeling. And the ability to move through something is, is, is kind of really tolerating the sensation and mm-hmm. being with the sensation. And I think many times we don't know how to be with the sensation. So could you, could you talk a bit about how to do that? Because I think sure. that is a, a key point. We, we so resist. We don't want to feel something. And so we sex it, you know, Instagram it, distract it, shop it, whatever, eat it away so we don't have to be with the sensation. So how can, what is the process for someone who, who is in that space and they're not quite sure, how do I be with a sensation? I feel like mm-hmm. if I'm with it, it's going to last forever or it'll never end. And so how do we start? Yeah. What, is, what is the kind of in our body, in ourselves? What, 
How do we do that? Well, um, to take it back to yoga, the the word yoga itself mm-hmm. is defined as um, to come together and make whole, and it recognizes that there's no separation between anything, that everything is connected, and that includes the mind and the body. Everything we think, feel, or experience has an effect on our cellular tissue, our biology is impacted by our psychology um, and all the events in our life, including historical, ancestral, and cultural trauma that has influenced us even in the unconscious. So now trauma, trauma means um, is anything that overwhelms our capacity to cope and leaves us feeling helpless, hopeless, out of control, or unable to respond. The, what might be traumatic for me might not be traumatic for you and vice versa. There's um, shock trauma. Those are those unimaginable events, one-offs that, that can cause PTSD, murder, rape, uh, finding out a, a partner has uh, betrayed you, um, war. Mm. But there's also developmental trauma. And we often minimize developmental trauma because it doesn't seem traumatic enough. Um, but that could be divorce death of a loved one, bullying, for example. In the moment of trauma, especially when we're children and we don't have words to express our big feelings, chemicals release from the brain and flood into our body. We're put into fight, flight, freeze, or collapse. So the moment that there is this narrative that has happened, that has caused fear, shame, guilt, rage, the body contracts out of protection, out of control. In that moment of contraction, that story, that narrative is now imprinted literally within the cells of our body. So tension, stress, and anxiety, as you know, as I hope everyone who's listening knows, is the number one cause of illness and, and disease. The suppressed emotion, the fear, the anger, the rage, the shame, the narrative that has been suppressed in the body becomes that tension, and we get addicted to that tension because that tension equals control, which in our, um, it, within our fractured self, we think that that's safe. We don't understand what's actually on the other side of that control is liberation. There's no evidence of that. Yes. So if you're a child and you were raised in a family where you experienced some kind of an emotional, something that was traumatic, Big feelings came up. Your parents recognized this and gave you space to scream, to cry, to rage, to break something, mm. to express fully all of the emotions without any shame attached to it. What happens is we discharge energy. Energy is in a vibration with information. That's the information that lives within the cells, within the tissue. We're able to discharge it releasing that tension but if we're not taught that and in many cases what we're taught is this big feeling comes up our parents even with the best of intentions they're like oh sean you're sad here have a cookie oh sean you're angry um here let's go to the mall let's go shopping and you know we'll you'll feel better we're given tools to self-soothe that are external or we're shamed a parent might say oh you're angry i'll give you something to be angry about and we're we're our feelings become minimized. Well, that suppressed, that narrative lives in the body, and every single time we get into a situation where within the unconscious we're reminded of that original trauma, our body will contract again. So the tension becomes cumulative. Mm. 
what happens is we become mm-hmm. adults. That tension, that sensation is masking the discomfort of the emotion. So what once may have been cookies or present to self-soothe can often become drugs or alcohol or inappropriate sex or watching TV mm-hmm. or a myriad of ways in which we will anesthetize ourselves from the bigger feelings rather than just sit in the sensation so that we can learn that sensation, like everything, changes. And that if we can sit with that discomfort, we can get to the other side of it rather than be reactive. Because what often happens is, let's say you say something to me that in that moment hurts my feelings. Now, what you said may have triggered me. And in that moment, I'm not 52-year-old Sean. I'm 8-year-old Sean. Yes. And as a result, my reaction to what you said is based on my shutdown emotions of that time. So I'm either going to try to um, power over you and make you feel as bad as you just made me feel, or I'm going to go power Mm. under um, and like the way I probably did as a child and feel insecure, Mm. withdrawn. Either way, I'm going to be creating separation within myself and separation within you, which is the opposite of yoga. And so what yoga teaches us is to be in relationship with the sensations in our body and with the emotions that live within, with, that live underneath that sensation, including the shadow emotions. And instead of pretending the shadow emotions are bad or wrong or <clears throat> flawed, letting them teach us about patience, acceptance, surrender. Because in yoga, again, no separation. To understand the light, you have to understand the shadow. And you have to heal that fractured, not deny it, bypass it, um, ignore it, but move towards it because it's in the shadow that we understand and are able to embrace the light. Does that make sense? Mm, Beautiful. I love this explanation. So clear, Sean. So let's say... Someone listening to this, you know, they have this craving, like, okay, I've listened to this conversation or, you know, I'm driving today, get home. I have this crazy craving for some alcohol or, or, you know, inappropriate sex or a cookie or something. And, And so we should allow the sensation to come up, be with the sensation, and do we breathe? What happens? Well, you know, because I think sometimes we feel the sensation and we're like, well, I know I shouldn't probably indulge this right now because I know usually when I do this afterwards, I don't feel great, mm-hmm. but we kind of we cave in uh, in that moment and then we feel like shit afterwards. And so right. are we, we just be, kind of walk us through in, in our body in the moment how, how we can be with the sensation because what I'm hearing from you is we're fully embracing the sensation. Is it through breathing? Is it through, mm-hmm. tell me a bit about that. Well, I, uh, the, there's a lot of complexities to your question because yes, of course yes. the, the disease of drugs and alcohol live on a very, very broad spectrum. And so for mm-hmm. some people it might mean getting to a meeting for other people, it yes, might mean yeah. recognizing that it's not a matter of just being present to sensation um, mm. because there might be so much trauma underneath that sensation that they need more support. That can include a somatic right. therapist. That can include right. a mentor. Um, mm-hmm. It can include having someone within a 12-step program helping to support them and be a sponsor. Mm. So there's, I don't want to minimize mm. this. 
um, by suggesting there's a one-size-fits-all in dealing Mm -hmm. with um, the way in which we respond to overwhelm. What I would say, Mm -hmm. though, is if it's possible to take a moment to recognize and own and be accountable for right now in this moment, I need, I want to drink or I want to act out sexually. Is something else going on within myself that I cannot tolerate that is leading me to make this choice in this moment? Just the first step of acknowledging there might be something emotional is really the first step in, in moving towards healing. Um, yeah. In the yoga practice, when you're in poses, sensation comes up in the body and so there's a practice in yoga that we can use to help us so that when these sensations arise in life we're able to have something to um, draw from so for example if I'm in a yoga pose like a hip opener and I'm fidgeting and I'm looking around and I'm fantasizing um, it's it's telling me that I'm resisting presence I don't want to be present Odds are I don't want to be present because sensation in my body, in my hips, are, are, is um, getting activated. And in life, when that sensation gets activated, I have access to drugs, to food, to other substances. On the, in the yoga mat, I don't. All I have is my mind. And so fantasy becomes my drug of choice in that moment. So I know that there are tools in the asana practice to get me present, which is breathe. Number one, breathe. Mm. Don't indulge the thought. So it's like acknowledge the thought, but try not to let yourself go into the story. Instead, come back Mm. to the breath and then put your awareness on the sensation. If it's pain, you get out of a pose. But if it's discomfort, you stay and you breathe and you observe the, the impulse to look around. You observe the projection that you have on the teacher, all as evidence of avoidance, to see what can happen if you stay with the sensation long enough. Now, the emotion might be anger, but more often than not, it turns to grief. That's what's underneath everything is the grief. And in the asana practice, through trauma-informed yoga, that's the style of yoga I teach, helps you to safely move into the grief, seeing it as, um, as part of the purification process, and that there's a spiritual philosophy that can help support the investigation to how that grief got there in the first place, our addiction to tension, and what it would look like to safely release that tension. So that in life, when something happens and I'm feeling the impulse to act out, I'm going to think to myself, I'm in a really hard yoga pose right now. What do I have to do in a hard yoga pose? I breathe. I try not to indulge the impulse or the addiction. Instead, I get into present time and notice the anxiety that is coming up, the overwhelm that I am feeling. If I backtrack it, it's going to be attached to trauma, that in that moment they're triggered, they're having an unconscious traumatic response to something, and their body wants to change the discomfort through the habit or the addiction that they've relied on. Mm-hmm. So, the, so the program, somatic, or any other kind of therapy, yoga practice, meditation practice, these are many of, or a few of the mm-hmm. many tools that are available to help people get into present time so that they can acknowledge 
I am I am at my edge right now. I am at capacity. Yes. I want to pick up that drink, but instead I'm going to call my sponsor. I'm going to take a breath mm-hmm. before I do so that I'm not reacting to the overwhelm and instead responding to the trauma that lives in the body and be more willing to uh, take seriously the unconscious pain that is imprinted in the body. And now, in the same way I inherited my curly hair and my blue Mm. eyes, is the same way Mm. I inherited from my grandparents, from their grandparents, um, my bias, my prejudice, Mm. my internalized uh, isms, whatever they may be, um, their trauma, their sexism, their genderism. I, that all lives within my body, and it comes out in different ways when I'm not in present time, when I'm scared or frightened or overwhelmed. So the more that we can really respect that this information lives in the body, we can recognize that there's tools so that we don't act out in the moment and so that we can sit in the discomfort and unpack the root of the trauma so that we can heal it. Beautiful. Beautiful. I love it. Deep wisdom there. Sean, I, I, you just actually, I, I thought of a question just now. It was definitely not on my plan to ask. I'm hoping I can because I think, you know, as a, as a yoga teacher, I think uh, you, you, you'll have some perspective as I'm, as I'm hearing you talk about trauma, the body, stress. Um, I think it might be relevant for, for some folks listening, especially now with you know, I've seen such a increase in, let's say, marijuana use today, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, cannabis, marijuana stores proliferating. You know, live in California, and so I'm curious from your perspective, and you know, you providing as a spiritual teacher as well, providing guidance to to, to kind of folks listening in. Just your thoughts on your thoughts on marijuana use, your thoughts on as your observation as a yoga teacher, how you feel about the use of marijuana. Um, I know a lot of folks that use it. I know folks that don't use it. I personally don't. Um, No judgment either way. Everyone has their own path. But what are your thoughts on the impact of marijuana use on the body, on the brain, on the nervous system, on someone's spiritual development? You know, there's there's, there's one camp of folks I know that's like, oh, it's, it's an enhancement to your spiritual development. Some folks are like, no, it impedes your spiritual development. And so... Just from an objective standpoint, could you provide your, your guidance to the, the sincere, you could say, spiritual seeker, yogi listening in as to what's your, what's your, what's your guidance as a teacher sure. to, to, to your students? Well, you know, I'm, I'm sober in my life and have been for mm-hmm. many years by choice, not by necessity, which is a difference mm-hmm. um, in mm-hmm. that I have, I'm not an addict. My Chemistry is such that if I wanted to drink, um, it would not impact me, um, except, of course, I'd get drunk, but it wouldn't be something chemically in my body that I would move towards addiction. It's just not who I am. I chose at a very young age not to indulge in drugs, alcohol, in any capacity um, because I don't want to alter my own brain chemistry mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to change the way I feel, to avoid feelings. Um, I, I can, I'm a dissociator by nature because of my own trauma. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. 
I would use drugs, alcohol, sex as a way to disengage, dissociate, and not feel. I would use these substances as a way to numb out in a way that I feel most, not all, but most people do and would. And so I don't advocate for drug use Mm. in any capacity. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, um, I mean, it goes down to even in my diet. I'm a vegan in my diet. Processed foods, you know, it's like there are so many different Mm. ways that chemicals stop us from really being present to our feelings. And so I'm not an advocate for it. And and yet at the same time, um, if I were to use drugs like marijuana, for example, and I wanted to use it for to open those channels spiritually, I would I would do it. Um, it would be very mindful with in a ritualized uh, capacity, setting intention. Um, where it was a part of my spiritual practice in that moment. Um, in the yeah. same way I did, I, I, when I, when I, when I, I've, I've done ayahuasca. And mm-hmm. now ayahuasca, it, it's intense. But, mm. and I did it as, it took me two years of, in, in some ways, purifying myself, getting really clear on what my intention was, working with shamans mm. in that moment to help move me through that practice. Then mm. when, and, and the, the time I've only, I've done it twice. There was years in between. And if I ever choose to do it again, it would be years from now mm. because mm. I would do it with intention, not recreational yeah not in any way flippant. And so I would feel the Mm. same way for me about marijuana or mushrooms or Mm. any kind of, I wouldn't advocate at all for any kind of a drug that was um, made chemically, Um, Mm. but a a plant-based drug, I would think it in terms, if if you're using it for spiritual um, depth work, it has to be done in a way that is mindful and intentional. Yeah. I do believe, yeah. especially using marijuana at a young age, it, it has an impact on your um, uh, on the effects, the way in which your brain is developing, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it also does cloud the development of your emotional capacity, and that doesn't set a good tone as we develop and mature in our life. And so I'm not an advocate advocate for um, uh, marijuana use at a young age. Um, at the same time, you know, people are adults. They can do whatever the hell they want. Um, mm-hmm. And if they're looking for depth and clarity in their life, to me, try mm-hmm. it sober because mm-hmm. it is so uncomfortable. Um, denial mm-hmm. and dissociation is an easier pathway than accountability and self-responsibility. And I think that having to really look at yourself in the most sober, literal and figurative light, light mm. forces you to have to really get clear of the ways in which we negate ourselves, self-beat, um, mm. and that's the way in which we heal. So I, I, that's, mm. that's kind of my response. I, I'm pretty, like, I draw, I also, my yeah. stepdaughter is an addict, and so I have, she's been, uh, uh, in recovery for years, and she's quite remarkable, and does deep work um, in helping other people and serving other people who are addicts. So my partner and I, for the last pretty much 20 years of our life, have walked side by side, deep 
with someone that we love in addiction and mm. see the the challenges that families have to go through, what individuals have to go through um, in mm. order to deal with the trauma, the deep feelings. Mm. And <clears throat> so I cannot ever be an advocate for any kind of drug use, um, unless, mm. of course, it's being prescribed by a doctor and that there's reasons yes. for it. Although I, I do come from the philosophy of educate, don't medicate, um, but in some cases it's necessary, and I support and yeah. value that. Um, and at the same time, I feel that we're too quick to move towards anesthetizing because mm-hmm. we're from a culture that thinks the shadow is shameful or bad rather than sit mm-hmm. with our jealousy, sit with our anger, mm-hmm. sit with the grief um, because it's what's going to teach us about love, acceptance, and most importantly, empathy. Because if I'm numbing myself out, then I stop caring about my own vulnerability. And if I don't care about mine, I can't care about you. And that's what creates yes. separation. That's what creates these divisions that are causing so much disruption in our culture. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. A willingness to feel, you know, mm-hmm. a willingness to feel, even if it's raw, even if it's uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, do you feel the same way? Yeah, no, I I love what you're saying about it. If I I numb my own vulnerability, then it it makes it harder for me to feel your vulnerability. And Mm -hmm. and that really does create the separation. And so it really really does start there. Mm -hmm. In terms of vulnerability, um, you've been teaching for 25 years, which is remarkable. You know, I think it's, it's amazing. You've been different, I'm sure, different, ways, different explorations, different expressions. So as a teacher, and I'm curious, um, as a fellow teacher, and, and I'm sure there's many folks listening in that are, are, are aspiring yoga teachers, healers, Reiki practitioners, energy workers, you know, speakers want to transformational teachers, so to speak, in their own respective ways. Um, I, one of the things I see that tends to stop people from sharing their gifts with the world uh, writing a book, you have a book coming out, uh, which I'm really excited to, to read myself. Uh, comes out, it's it's comes out September the third. Revolution of the Soul: Awaken to Love Through Raw Truth, Radical Healing, and Conscious Action. Um, really looking forward to reading that. But I think one of the reasons that I think people don't put their gifts out is because they're afraid. At least I observe of what what you're going to think of me, what other people are going to think, and we, we're seeking you know validation and approval and 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 I think it often freaking hijacks people from sharing their gifts with the world. And I see so many friends and family members and clients not put themselves out there in the world out of this, this fear. And I'm curious, in your part, Sean, did you face that sort of uh, need for external validation? How did you deal with it? What, what do you do? Do you still feel it? And how did you move through it? Because to me, as I... You know, when we were at the uh, We Rise Up uh, um, premiere and I saw you on stage, we were both on stage. I was really just inspired by your presence. You were just being, at least in my observation, I think I connected with you because you were just being just wholly shown. And it was so refreshing to see someone just fucking being themselves, you know? Mm -hmm. And, And it just felt like it gave people around in the space permission to just be more of who they are. So how did you get to that point? And how how does someone move through their own 
issues around approval and validation and putting themselves out there into the world and being visible and being seen. Sure. Um, Now, first, as a reminder to the people listening, I've been doing yoga since 19, in therapy since 19. I'm 52 Uh, and have been committed (laughs) to doing deep inner work with different mentors and teachers through the whole of my life. So if I show up seemingly in my authentic power, it's because I am on a path, have committed to that path, and have worked tirelessly to develop the self-confidence that often blocks us from our light. And so what you see is, I think, representative of hard and continued deep work. Yes. I believe that self-esteem is a pandemic, or low self-esteem is a pandemic within our culture, that Mm. our culture has been designed to keep us feeling powerless. Um, And because I believe that God is within, I believe that God is truth and love that exists within, that everything that we need to know is already inside of us, the articulation, the wisdom, the only thing that blocks us from our intuition and from this and from trusting this inner knowing is self-esteem. Mm. And so yeah. the work is to reframe our narratives, see a bigger spiritual picture to why things happen as they do, and mm. begin the process of healing it. Like I said, you can't change what is, but you can change your perspective. So I can recognize, like I, like I had trauma as a child. I can't change that event or those events but I can see that those, that event, as it was, also taught me acceptance. It taught me resilience. It taught me bravery, courage. And I can later on in life look at that moment and find gratitude for what was, without condoning the event, but to find gratitude and, and cut that cord that leaves me stuck in that narrative that I'm a victim. But this takes years. It's through the development of self-confidence that I can trust myself and show up the way in which I believe God intends me to show up, which is mm. Sean, um, mm. you know, New, New Jersey, you know, foul mouth, emotional, vulnerable, <laughs> powerful, because I also recognize that we are all here to awaken to what love is. Like I get that, that in my path, your path, everyone who's listening and but we're in service to something bigger than our small self, and that's God. The yeah. only time I, that I get caught up in listening to those voices that say I'm not enough, which is learned behavior. Mm. The world told me I wasn't enough. My education system mm. told me I wasn't enough. The patriarchy told me I wasn't enough. But that's not true, and I know that within my mm. unconscious. If I go out into the world with the intention to please you or to please your listeners or to make my students happy, then that's mm. coming from a place of codependence, meaning my, self-esteem, my self-esteem is dependent upon whether or not you or your listeners or my students like me as an ego. I have to sit yep. and say and really look at, I'm here to be in service to God. I've got a voice and experience and wisdom that is unique to me. Um, doesn't make me any more special than you or any of your listeners or any of my students. It's just this is what I come into the world with. So when I show up and speak, I know that I am only here. If I had to please anything or one or whatever you want to call it, it's my relationship with God. Mm. 
and that means my relationship mm. to self with a capital S. And mm. that's when I can teach fully and humanly. That's when I can say, I'm going to write this, and, I'm, and how dare I let my small self, my ego, my insecurity, get in the way of sharing a truth that is unique to my experience and my unique self-expression. One more being, one more tool on the path of so many different inspirations that might be in service to other people. That's what I would say to the to listeners is do the work to develop the self-confidence. Call your power back. No longer empower these negative stories of victimization, although there's there's a necessity to the path to be in that victimization so that we can learn from it. But if you're still there 10, 20, 30 years down the path, I would have to say Mm -hmm. you're stuck in that narrative. This is now defining who you think you are. And so we've got to be willing to transcend these narratives and be in service to something bigger than ourselves. And it doesn't mean I don't, I I was scared to death writing the book. Everything that came Mm -hmm. out of my mouth, I was like, why the fuck am I doing this? Um, and I had to, the mantra I had is that I had to write everything, but I didn't have to print everything mm. that I, mm. at the end of right before it went to print, I had agency over my story and that I could tell what it is or what I, what I wanted to, or what I didn't want to. But before I could yeah. make that decision, I had to sit with it, feel it, integrate it. And by the time I wrote the book, I was pretty much able to write everything that threatened or scared me because I gave it mm. voice. And once I gave it voice, mm. I was able to unpack it and see whose voice was actually keeping me from wanting to tell these truths. Mm. What part of my shadow, my ego was terrified. And once I gave that some space for actualization, I realized like, oh, okay, that's, that's real. And it doesn't get to drive this doesn't get to drive this car. It doesn't get to run the show. But I needed to give it voice. So that's what I would recommend to people is do the work and be consistent with it and committed to with it. And that it doesn't end. I'm still in therapy. I still get on my mm-hmm. yoga mat. I still have voices in, the, in my head that say, you know, you don't have to do the work today, Sean. You got this. My mm-hmm. probably biggest shadow in this work is that I over understand which means is I can tell you how I feel I can give you all the reasons I feel the way I do and not actually Mm. feel it and that Mm. is often the shadow of the spiritual teacher or the spiritual Mm. practitioner is that we cultivate all these tools but we forget to actually apply them and Mm. so for me asana practice moving through the tension yelling, screaming, raging, being spiritually Mm. immature. And what I mean by that is in the privacy of my own room, I write fuck you letters. I I write Uh all the judgment that I might have towards someone Mm. else or towards myself so that I could see it because it's energy. Mm. And if if I'm not owning it, it's in the unconscious uh, manipulating Mm. my choices. So I have to let the, the, that, that unconscious information out so I can work with it mm. and not think that I'm above it. The moment I think I'm above it, I'm fucked. You know, there's no place mm. to go. It's just spiritual arrogance. Yeah, and, and I love that you're really just being honest in the same way. There's no, there's no like a quick shortcut here. You know, it's been a lifetime of work and yeah. yoga and emotional yoga, inner yoga, doing the inner transformation. It's not like a, 
you know, self-esteem, validation. That it's not it's not just a sort of quick shortcut, three-step thing you just do and boom, here you are. You've been doing the work. And so, folks, as you listen in to this amazing conversation with Sean Korn, author of Revolution of the Soul, a new book, um, I really hope you're taking that in. There are no shortcuts. You can't mm-hmm. just hack authenticity. You can't just hack, you know, realness. You have to be willing to do the work and be in it for the work and the process mm-hmm. and what it takes to be alive and human. It's, 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 like, it's beautiful. It's like what Billy said. Ignore the story and see the soul and remember to love. You'll never regret mm. it. Danny the Wonder Pony, mm. Violet, the men in the bar, me and Billy. Our trauma our life experience, it's all a story, but it's not who we are, yet it's a story that informs our capacity to wake up to love. And so we have to mm. both embrace the story, take ownership for mm. it, accountability, and transcend it. Because if I can transcend my story, then I'm not going to hold you to yours. Yeah. I'm going to see that you're doing yeah. the best you can with what little you know, based on the trauma you've experienced and perhaps the lack of tools you've had in order to reclaim your own highest self. And I've got to trust that your being able to do that work is between you and God. And it's a timeline that's unique to you and none of my business, quite frankly, in the same way that my pathway is unique to me and no one else's business. Mm. Although I am kind of imagining a whole bunch of spiritual yogis now, Sean, going to uh, gay sex clubs in New York, <laughs> just crashing, having, well, seeking these experiences, you know. But I think you're absolutely <laughs> right on, right on. This has been a, a really special conversation, folks, uh, with the amazing Sean Corn. You know, Sean, I feel like, honestly, this, this, this time has flown by with you. Uh, it's been so much. I mean, we've been talking, you've been sharing some deep stuff, but... At the same time, you've just been making it so practical, raw, real, and dare I say it, fun. You know, I'm having a ton of fun listening to you at the same time talking about trauma and Mm -hmm. dealing with your shadow and doing the deep work. It's been a lot of fun, honestly. And and so just thank you for being so generous. I do have one final question for you. Sure. Uh, And it's just, I just want you, you know, you've shared a lot in this, in this time together, but as you reflect on everything you've been through in your life, and I'm sure you've shared many of these lessons and life lessons in your book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would love for you to just look at, like, if there were three key life lessons, and, you know, on a given day, tomorrow you may have three different ones, but if there were three of what you feel would be the most important lessons that you could distill into three key points that you would share with, you know, your kids, grandchildren, the next generation that you feel would evolve the next generation the most, I would love for you to share that with our audience today. What are the three most important life lessons that you'd pass on to the next generation from your life that you've learned? I would have to say it's, um, and I think it's actually four in that. Four is good. We'll take four. Mm -hmm. It's what my father said to me, um, who also also became a yoga teacher uh, later in life, but it was a huge part of our relationship. My father said to me before he died, um, he said, uh, uh, love big, do good, Forgive always, and don't be an asshole. <laughs> so there you go. That's what I live by. Love big. Um, actually, it's love big, forgive always, do good, and don't be an asshole. That's the order. Um, so love big with everything you have. Love love the planet. Love each other. Love yourself. Love God. Forgive always yourself and each other mm. for the choices that we have made that have hurt or harmed 
um, or created fracture, recognizing that we are all here in this awakening and that we don't always do it well. Now, forgiveness is, it takes time, it's a pathway, it's not a one and done, but it's definitely something we have to move towards because it's a poison we take hoping someone else will die, that inability Mm -hmm. to forgive or to hold on to resentment. Do good means just be of service. Turn the me into the we, the individual into the collective, because our liberation is bound. And I can't be free unless we're all free. So we must serve. We must look outside of our own experience and do whatever we can to end the suffering of souls, especially for those who deal with unimaginable oppression because of the ways in which these systems are set up to divide us. And then yeah. finally, and just the one I'm, it's in my prayers almost every single day. Don't be an asshole. It really is that simple. Don't be an asshole. Just don't mm. let your ego get in the way of truth and love. Don't do anything that is going to be self-serving, that's going to cause someone else discomfort, that's going to be motivated by your own inner agenda to be right or to be better than um, uh, or to be arrogant. Just don't be an asshole. And so that's mm. really... Those are the four things in which I live by and am committed to and am looking at every single day of my life. I love it. Sean, those are the, the four keys from <laughs> Sean Cohn. Sean, yeah. I, I got your next book down. Your next book, Don't what Be an that? Asshole. <laughs> Don't Be an Asshole by Sean Cohn. That's, that's it right there. We that's it. Book, <laughs> Don't Be an Asshole. <laughs> Can you... Can you assign, as you wrap up, could you just assign like one simple, you know, 10-second simple homework assignment that uh, folks listening in could just immediately right now do, practice, apply one simple thing to just sort of uh, uh, just practically take what you said and just put it into action right now. There's one action step. I would have to say, because it's how I live my own life, and it's actually, if if it's okay, I'd like to lead them through something really quickly. Is that cool? Please. Yeah, Um, let's do it. If, if, you're, if you're listening um, and you're not driving in your car, like if you're at home, uh, I want to invite you to close your eyes for a moment, sit up tall. You're going to take a very deep breath in and then exhale it out. And just take a moment just to be present with your body, with your environment, and ask yourself this question. Just how are you? How's life, your family, your work, your health? your body? Are you in a place right now where you are nurturing and nourishing yourself, where you are inspired and excited about life and your creative response to the world in which you're a part of? Or are you in a place right now where perhaps you're just a little off the wagon, where you've been indulging in substances or relationships that are imbalanced or out of harmony to who you really are? disconnected from your own emotions, without any judgment, just an acknowledgement of if you're in a place of energetic abundance or some retreat or withdrawal. And then place your palms into namaste, if you can. And then we call in the God of our own unique understanding, be it your higher power, the creative consciousness, Mother Earth, or the Holy Mother herself. And to this grace we ask, may our life May our practice be a commitment to heal body, mind, and spirit. 
we ask, may we step into that sacred world behind our eyes, letting go of human interpretation. May we embrace divine perception, which is infinite and limitless. We ask, may we transform our resistance into surrender, our judgment into understanding and compassion, and most certainly, dear God, our fear into faith. And may faith be the quality of being that moves us forward on our path with an open heart and an open mind. We take this moment to give thanks for our bodies, for our breath, and for these tools, these resources that are accessible to us. We ask for the strength to use them. We ask for the willingness to cultivate more mentorship and guidance. We ask for patience and acceptance as we move forward, stumbling often on our path, trusting fully and completely the wisdom that is within that will guide us back home to the truth and light that is already within our own ever-evolving consciousness. We ask that as we grow, as we evolve, as we remember who we are, may we serve and do whatever we need to do in order to create a world that is free and fair and equal and safe and resourced and peace-filled for all beings everywhere. In the name of that gratitude, in the name of that peace, in the name of that commitment to do the inner work to heal, Take another very deep breath in. Exhale it out. Place your fingertips to your third eye center and in your mind's eye, say, may I know the truth. Bring your fingertips to your lips and say in your mind's eye, may I speak the truth. And then bring your fingertips to your heart center and say, may I feel it. May I embody it. May I own it forevermore and remember completely and fully who we are to each other and who we are to God, which is love. Mm. Mm. Amen. Blessed be and namaste. Amen. Sean, thank you so much for Wow, just being who you are for the blessing. We're all, I know, uh, I know I'm digesting it. Thank you for sharing yourself, just your love and just being, just being a magnificent expression of the divine. Thank, Thank you, for, you for coming on Soul Talk. And what's the best way people can find out about your, I know you have a book coming out, yep. Revolution of the Soul. Folks, I want to invite you to check out Sean's book, Revolution of the Soul. Uh, check out her work, but what's the best website people can find out sure. about you, your work, your events, your schedule? SeanCorn.com. They can find out all sorts of stuff. If they go to RevolutionOfTheSoulBook.com, they can download the first chapter um, as well as the intro, and they can also get for free seven uh, short videos that have prayers and meditations in them. Plus, they can mm. also enter to win um, 30 hours of DVD content that's downloadable, mm. including lectures and practices. Um, and mm. so revolutionofthesoulbook.com would probably be like a good place to go to get all sorts of free stuff. And then my website to find out, you know, I'm gonna, where I'm teaching, I'm going to be going on a book tour, uh, and all that good stuff. And also awesomeatintotheworld.org if they want to learn about how to get involved in the trainings that we do to um, bridge the gap between yoga, transformational work, social justice, and conscious action. Beautiful. 
And we'll put, we'll, folks, we'll put all of these uh, amazing links in the show notes, seancon.com, revolutionofthesoul.com, and offthemat.org. We'll, we'll make sure that's all in the show notes. Sean, once again, namaste. Thank you so much, folks, as you listen in. Hope you've been taking lots of notes. This episode was uh, true fire, fire for the soul, inspiration for the soul. Please do download this episode, subscribe to Soul Talk. Make sure you share today's episode with everyone you love. Let them know you had an amazing time with the amazing Sean Korn. Check out her book, Revolution of the Soul. Send me an email, kubblackson at kubblackson.com. I would love to know your key takeaways from uh, today's episode. I'd love to hear from each of you. I love receiving your emails and staying connected with you. And I'm really looking forward to connecting again in the next episode of Soul Talk. Love now. If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.cooplaxon.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at coopblackson.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.